Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. The century is nearly drawing to a close, but we have a couple years to go first, and today we're diving into 1898 and the births, deaths, and events that happened in Canada that year, and overall, it was a quiet year. The March 1st Ontario election would bring about a monumental change in Ontario politics, but not in terms of what party was ruling. Sir Oliver Mowat had moved on to federal politics after Sir Wilfrid Laurier took office as Liberal Prime Minister in 1896. The Liberals were now led by Arthur Hardy, who had been serving in the legislature since 1873 and had served in the cabinet of Mowat since 1877. Heading into the election, he campaigned on the fact that the Liberals had led Ontario for 26 years of what he called, quote, progressive legislation and honest administration. James Whitney was now the leader of the Conservatives, having come into office in 1888. A former soldier in the Canadian militia, he would see success in the election campaign leading up to the election. In the election, the Liberals did gain six seats to finish with 51, but the Conservatives surged ahead with 19 more seats to finish with 42. Despite this, the Liberals still had a clear majority in the legislature. The patrons of industry and Protestant Protective Association lost nearly all their support and finished with no seats after having success in the previous election. The Montreal Gazette wrote, The Ontario government had a narrow escape from defeat today. Mr. Whitney had proved that he put up one of the best fights the province ever witnessed in a provincial campaign. Due to the results being close and several races needing recounts, competing papers would claim victory for the party they supported. The Toronto Globe stated that Hardy was the victor with a clear majority, while opposition papers, such as Perry Sound, stated that Whitney had the majority. After the election, Hardy wanted to call another election almost immediately, but his ministers would talk him out of this. As for the Conservatives, since they had come so close to winning, they decided with more money they could win the next election, and Whitney would begin launching election protests in the hopes of pushing the Liberals to call that election. In April, 10 years in Manitoba, the first Canadian film was showcased in the United Kingdom by the Canadian Pacific Railway. The film was used as propaganda to convince people to immigrate to Western Canada. The Klondike Gold Rush continued through this year, but it was not without tragedy. On April 3rd, an avalanche in the Chilkoot Pass killed over 60 people. Duncan Clark, a farm boy from Iowa, saw the avalanche and describes it as, It was a horrible sight to see. Big, robust men, the very picture of health, dug from the snow, put on a sled, and hauled to the morgue. Forty were dead from the first day, my brother John among the number. By the spring, a tramway was built on the pass that would take up nine tons of goods per hour. The amount of people going to the Klondike continued to be high, and in May alone, 7,124 boats of various sizes and quality went down the Yukon River. And there were many claims, but few prospectors made any real money due to the best claims already snapped up months, even years earlier. By the summer of 1898, Skagway had 20,000 people in it and was the largest city in Alaska. In Skagway, Jefferson Randolph Soapy Smith operated with his gang, effectively controlling the entire city. 
His gang of 300 men cheated and stole from the prospectors who arrived. He operated three saloons on the guise that he was an upstanding member of the community, but he had several fake businesses. One was a fake telegraph office that charged to send messages to the rest of the continent, but nothing was sent, and a fake reply was usually received. Eventually, people grew tired of Smith, and he was shot on July 8, 1898. Even communities far from the Yukon, like Edmonton, saw an increase. At the time of the gold strike in the Yukon, Edmonton had 1,500 people. By 1898, there were 4,000 living in the community. By the spring of 1898, the population of Dawson City was 30,000 strong, with buildings appearing on a daily basis. This was not good news for the community. There was no running water or sewer system and only two springs for drinking water, along with the river that was quickly becoming heavily polluted. By the spring, plots were selling for $10,000 or $280,000 today, with prime spots on Front Street selling for $20,000 or $560,000 today. A small log cabin would rent out for $100 or $2,800 today. On one city block, a huge white circus tent could be seen surrounded by ramshackle wooden buildings. Inside the tent was a portable bowling alley, a soda machine, two dozen pigeons, along with fine china and silver. The owners of the tent were two rich American women named Edith Van Buren and Mary Hitchcock, who perfectly exemplified the heyday of Dawson City and the things that you could find. One couple made $30,000 or $500,000 in one single winter in the Yukon selling coffees and pies. With the community springing up so quickly, and building codes not being something anyone considered, fires were common. The first fire happened on November 25, 1897 when Belle Mitchell, a dance hall girl, accidentally started a fire. She accidentally started another one on October 14, 1898, which destroyed the post office and a bank and two saloons. In order to maintain order, on June 13th, the Canadian government created the Yukon Territory. Oh, he sits there in his red coat, all spitting polished, and he says, Where, Where would you be going? Well, I'm going to the Klondike to look at your gold fields, if there really is any. Not with this gambling gear and those revolvers. Men don't wear pistols in Canada. Canada be damned. I'm going to the Klondike. The Klondike is Canada. Pack those pistols in your saddlebags or get back to U.S. territory. I'm an American. You can't do this to me. In that case, I'll be lenient. We'll keep this gambling gear and you'll be back in the United States by sundown. Uh, he never drew no gun. I could have shot that guy right there. Who was he anyway? Superintendent Sam Steele of the Northwest Mounted Police. Why didn't I shoot him? In the days of the gold rush, a policeman, Sam Steele, became a legend of the Klondike. I don't know. Why didn't I shoot him? On July 1st, George Dixon, a boxer from Africville, Nova Scotia, went 25 rounds against Ben Jordan. While he lost the close bout, it was at the time considered to be the best boxing match in history. Dixon would reclaim the featherweight title on November 11th when he beat Dave Sullivan. On November 12th, John Gordon Hamilton's time as Governor-General came to an end. Hamilton would state that there needed to be a new Rideau Hall that provided a better view of the Ottawa River and that Majors Hills Park would be utilized as a skating rink in the winter. He would say, according to the Ottawa Journal, quote, The capital, like the Dominion, he said, would be bound to grow and hope the municipal representatives would take every opportunity to improve it. Lady Aberdeen said of her time in Canada, quote, of all these 21 happy years, I think none were happier than the five we have spent in Canada. Back in Liverpool, Hamilton praised Canada by stating, Canada's bold policy in turning towards England when the markets of the United States were closer to her 
Kanda is working out her own development and destiny for her sake, but in doing so she is necessarily working also for the sake of the great empire of which she forms so splendid a portion. On November 11th, Lord Minto officially became the 8th Governor General of Canada. Arriving at midnight, he would speak to the public at an official ceremony the following day. He would say, It is very encouraging to me to receive such hearty words of welcome on assuming the duties and responsibilities of my high office, and it is very pleasant to me to feel that any small service I may have rendered to Canada in the past have not been forgotten. On December 1st, 1898, Lord Minto was made the Honorary Lieutenant Colonel of the Governor's General's Foot Guards. This began the tradition of appointing Governor's General as the Honorary Colonels of the Guards that continues to this day. Also this year, the first real push for a national prohibition happened in 1898 when there was a federal referendum on the matter. A total of 51% of voters voted in favour of it, but voter turnout was incredibly low at the time of only 44%. In every province but Quebec, prohibition votes were in the majority. With that majority vote, it would have been feasible for the government to push for a federal bill on prohibition, but Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier chose instead to not pursue it because of the strong opposition to the matter in Quebec, as well as low turnout of voters. And while there was no federal prohibition, Prince Edward Island did begin its prohibition era, which lasted for 50 years. The decision to ban alcohol came about after the referendum in the province this year, which only had 20% against prohibition. The province would put Prohibition in officially in 1901. Also, Mary Pickford made her stage debut this year, appearing in Bottles Baby, put on by the Valentine Stock Company. This began her eventual rise to becoming one of the most famous women in the world through her silent films of the 1910s. And lastly, when the Spanish-American War broke out, Toronto Mail reporter Kit Coleman volunteered to cover the war. The newspaper agreed, and she became the first female war correspondent in history. I hope you enjoyed that episode of 1898. It was a short one, but there wasn't a lot going on this year. Next episode, we're looking at 1899, the last episode of the 19th century for us. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.